when you look at the marketing playing field, it's been leveled. Big user act budgets won't necessarily win right now. Same day shipping, things like that won't necessarily win because fundamentally they're not scalable and in today's climate especially, they're just not sustainable. So I think brands that are pure marketing companies with a so-so product, they may go away. Brands that are not operationally robust will go away because it's just gonna be disappointing customer experiences time after time. Brands who build a relationship with the consumer, who prioritize quality over quantity, these are the brands that are gonna win. And it sounds very obvious, but it's back to basics, it's back to fundamentals. It's always great to see brands who tell good stories and make good products win. Hello and welcome to D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today, we are very lucky to be joined by Nell Diamond, CEO and co-founder of Hill House Home, as well as Outer Space CEO and co-founder Ricky Choi. Nell, can we start? I've been going over Hill House Home, and you have such a diverse array of products. Can you just tell me a little bit of the, the sort of origin story behind Hill House Home? Absolutely. So I started Hill House Home in 2016, and we started with one very specific product. My family likes to joke, I always like to start with the hardest thing first. So we started with selling bedding, which is very difficult to sell a rectangle of white cotton on the internet. Um, but we really kind of got our uh, hands dirty, built the business over a couple of years um, with that one product line kind of really zeroing in on, on how to talk about the value proposition. And then since then, we've expanded into fashion, kids, um, other homewares, shoes, jewelry, now a full kind of lifestyle brand. So it's been a, it's been a wild ride. How did you do it? How did you, how did you establish, I guess it took you two years, you said, but how did you establish yourself in the bedding space? How did you differentiate yourself? Yeah, so for us, it was really about being design-driven. So our kind of value proposition was that, look, you know, sure, the D2C model is great. We can get you incredibly high-quality product at a really, really affordable price, and we can do it on the internet. But what we also believed was just because you're practical and thoughtful doesn't mean you can't have a design that just makes you think, oh, my gosh, this is super cool, and I love my bedroom, and I love the way this looks. So we took kind of old-world French and English uh, inspirations, and we applied them to bedding and bath and all those home categories. Um, and we started small. So we focused on profitability, which in 2016 for a DTC company was very unpopular. Um, focused on profitability, you know, spent kind of next to nothing on marketing um, and built a very kind of small but loyal following in New York City. Um, and from there, we basically used that super loyal group of customers as a little test group. So we would test new products on them. We would see what they were responding to. And a couple years in, um, we had kind of one of our first viral products, which is a product called the nap dress, which is a dress that you can kind of wear to sleep in, you can wear it to go out, you can wear it all day long. Um, we tested that product with our kind of small but loyal group of customers, and the rest was history. It started selling out like crazy. Um, now we have, you know, kind of dozens of different nap dress styles and colors and patterns, and it's taken on a life of its own. So it's been, um, it was really with that loyal group of customers that we kind of expanded. I imagine the brand has just been like making sure that the brand is pristine. The brand is always speaking to, you know, your customer base and your design aesthetic. I'm sure that's been an essential component of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think we we tend to think of brand also as like a living thing, right? Something that exists outside of us. Um, every touch point is crucial. You know, every word that we say on the internet, in person, every sales associate, every package that we send out has to feel brand appropriate. Um, and that's definitely been something that we think a lot about. 
how much did the nap dress come from your personal style? Like, what's what's the origin story of the nap dress? Um, when I founded the company in 2016, about a, a week after we launched in January, I found out I was pregnant with my first child. Um, I was 27 years old, which in you know most of the world is pretty normal, but in New York, I felt like I was a teen mom. So I knew nothing about kids. I knew nothing about babies. All my friends were like at the club single, and my life totally changed. So you know, I had a baby. I had a business. I was looking for something that made me feel like myself after um, giving birth and running around, but you know, it was still comfortable, still could kind of last me through from work to taking care of my kid to going out to dinner. Um, so it really kind of was born out of the, this need that I personally had. And it turned out a lot of other people had the same need. It's amazing to, to you build a company just to start around home, you know, bedding and things like that. And to be able to move seamlessly into fashion in such a way that resonates with your audience. Like, how did you know? Is it basically like you've got this this group of, of loyal customers you built up uh, with the bedding and then you launch it? Like, how did you know that the that the nap dress was going to catch fire the way it did? We didn't. You know, I, I thought there was a huge chance that people would say, like, nope, not interested. Like, that's something that she likes, but I don't like that. And I think what was really crucial for us was always saying that we are not a, you know, category brand. We are a customer brand. So it's really about the customer that we're serving. And we'll let them decide, right? We're not going to, like, you know, I went to business school, but I'm not sitting around with a business plan and an Excel sheet saying, like, this is exactly what people are going to like. I don't pretend to know the future. So I think the most crucial part of the business and, you know, the only reason we've been able to have any sort of success is that conversation, that direct line with the customers where they can tell us, like, love what you just did or absolutely don't like it at all. <laughs> and that gets facilitated across socials, across email, sort of across all your, your traditional channels? Yeah, absolutely. I think social is a really powerful tool for that, right? Because we can do things like post a picture of a dress that we're designing and say, like, hey, do you guys like the long sleeve or the short sleeve? Or, like, see how many people react to the color yellow versus blue. So it's really like this real-time feedback that we can get, um, which is, you know, hugely valuable, especially if you think about fashion over the last kind of couple decades, you know, you used to have to wait like, you know, eight months to a year as a fashion retailer to get feedback on your uh, on your product. And you were getting it from a wholesaler. You weren't like having that direct line with the customer. So for me, D to C more than anything is about the direct line to your customer feedback more than it is even about the cutting out the middleman and, and getting a better price. I think that's amazing, especially for a, an expansive brand like yours, where you're going into so many different areas. Did you know that, like from the beginning, that you know when you were making, when you were starting with bedding, did you know that you eventually wanted to verge into fashion? I saw you've now launched swimwear as well as footwear as well, right? Yes. Um, you know, I think it was like a little bit of a fever dream. Like I kind of hoped we would be able to do fashion and shoes and all of those things. But again, I remember saying at the very beginning, like, look, if people tell us like that's not what they want, I, I'm not going to get caught up on that. You know, it's it's not about me. <laughs> it's about what people actually want to spend their hard earned money on. So I think in the back of my head, I was like, please like this. I will be so happy. But we weren't kind of counting on it. So with, uh, you know, this incredible attention to brand, this great pipeline to your customers, what, what do you credit as, the, as the, the biggest lever you've been able to use for growth in your, whatever, six years now? What, what has been the biggest driver of growth for you, would you say? Well, that's a great question. I think the biggest driver of growth, you know, it, it's really on two sides, right? It's on the kind of creation side. So being able to have this amazing relationship with our factories where, you know, if we see that one particular style is doing really, really well in fall, we can kind of in real time take that data, call up our factory partners and say like, look, let's invest really significantly in this product for the next season because we can see that the demand is there and having that great relationship where they're willing 
to, you know, make that happen for us. And then I think, you know, just on the logistics side, like having the ability to actually meet the demand that our customers have for this, this product has been a huge part of our success. And, and I think part of this is is the model that you've kind of evolved. You, you, you talked about having this amazing connection to your customers, this two-way conversation, and that's kind of led into this concept of drops. And, you know, the fact that you're also dropping, you're, you're launching across multiple SKUs, multiple products, you have this loyal base, you've evolved to the drop model. How, how did, did you plan to, to be a, a brand that focused on drops or like how did, how did that come about? Yeah, we really didn't. We did not plan to be focused on drops. Uh, drops came about because we would release new product. We'd think, great, this is like our next three months of selling, and then it would sell out on day one. <laughs> and that happened for almost 18 months. So literally every drop, we would say, let's invest significantly more. Let's buy more of the style. People really want it. My biggest, I'm like a people pleaser, so I would hate the energy of like on a drop day, people being like, I didn't get what I wanted. I was like, I would like to give all of you this. I would literally try and like take it off my back to give to people. Um, um, so I didn't like drops at first. I was really against them, but we couldn't help it. We just kept selling out, which is obviously a great problem to have. Um, and then we figured out some ways to make drops really feel fun and feel like this collaborative community-based like shopping experience. We have something called the Nap Room, which is basically like a immersive experience on our website on drop days where people can come in. There's a chat room. I do a live stream. It's like my friend calls it fancy QVC. I'm like holding up the dresses and telling them what I like about it. I kind of uh, live stream in on YouTube. And that's really fun. So we, we found ways to make that drop model just even more immersive. And, and especially during COVID, because so much of our business has grown in, in the past kind of couple years, it was a way to kind of be safely online and have that like shopping experience that I just love, um, like a kind of community-based friend shopping with your friends. Which is so cool. You, you hear of live shopping sort of taking over Asia in a lot of ways. The amount of people that are watching other people shop. It hasn't really caught on to the same extent here, but it's cool to hear you're kind of kind of hacking it in a way, right? You're not using a, an external platform. You're using YouTube, but you're not using a, a live shopping platform uh, and really kind of making that, that, that communal experience. Sounds great. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, we built our own little, our engineers have been hard at work on our, you know, we work on Shopify, you know, they built our own little kind of technology on uh, using YouTube streaming to kind of live shop in, in some ways. And it's been really fun. I think it's, um, it's been a, a new thing that our customers have loved. So with the drop model, and you say 18 months of sort of planning for these big drops and maybe not always getting the fulfillment and, and warehousing and traditional supply chain management that you kind of needed, what were the key ways that your traditional warehousing and supply chain management were letting you down with that drop model? I mean, there were so many. <laughs> we, we had some real challenges uh, in that kind of heavy growth phase of our business um, with, these drop, with the drop model and on the warehousing and logistics side. I mean, it was everything from our, our kind of previous fulfillment partner just could not handle the increase in demand, could not handle the kind of um, drop day volume. And then it was leaving, you know, our customers waiting, you know, 14 days for a product that they had like happily, you know, joined the nap room for and been so excited about and inconsistencies about like who was getting what when. And that's like my nightmare where we're, we really want people to like feel very positive about their shopping experience. This is something that's meant to bring you joy. So I think we felt a little bit down by that inability to handle the logistics uh, of the drop model. I think that was kind of huge for us. You've got the rush of the drop, which has got to be one of the best. Like, can you can you wow me a little bit? What's what's been your what's been your most successful drop so far? 
Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I'm racking my brain right now because I have to remember what the, we just, I'll tell you this. This is why um, my my communications team is going to be happy they're not on the podcast. I'll tell you this. The, the drop we had in June was our best drop ever. We had our kind of fastest um, growth. I know the most recently published stat though is like a million dollars, I think in 12 minutes or something like that. It's been, it's been crazy. I mean, we do tens of thousands of units in a very, very short amount of time on a drop day. So you're working with, and you're not working with Outer Space to start. You're working with one of the traditional big players who's probably a little bit less flexible. Ricky, jump in there. Like, can you t- like, tell me why you created Outer Space to compete with some of these bigger, less flexible players? Yeah, I think um, just a just a note on kind of Hill House first and and the nap dress. I think what's so interesting about what Nell and the team have built over at Hill House is. When you look at the nap dress as a product, it's such a story-driven product. I think given the versatility of it, how it looks versus how it functions, there's a really interesting intersect there. And I think when a lot of people buy it, they have an occasion in mind. Or, hey, I'm going somewhere this weekend, this nap dress would look perfect, I'm buying it in this certain color, in this certain print. And especially when you're executing that on a drop and there's so much excitement, the product has to get there on time. They've been emotionally queued up to wear it to a certain occasion, and when it doesn't come, it's just, it just feels very disappointing. So I think especially for story-driven brands and brands that are creating interesting products, people have you know occasions and times in mind that they want to wear the apparel or use the product or whatever it is. So I think that's very important. That, that kind of all ties into really why we created Outer Space, and, and we created Outer Space for two simple reasons. One, we were, we were quite frustrated and wanted to create something for consumer brands that that was built specifically by consumer brands. When you go back to our origin story, we essentially started out as a collective of consumer brand founders and operators wanting to create some sort of warehousing and fulfillment solution that was tailored exclusively to our needs. And this is a tricky space with with relatively old roots. What started out as trucking companies, cross-docking, large shipments, and distribution centers handling you know, wholesale fulfillment by the pallet has quickly had to evolve over the last decade to really address e-commerce, which is from a practical nuts and bolts warehousing sense, it's individual orders. It's picking and packing single items, putting them in tissue paper, putting them into boxes, and that's a radically different model and a whole different animal. So really when you look at direct consumer brands, especially, they don't take up the same footprint or have the same labor or trucking needs that traditional brands that were distributing to a lot of wholesale had back in the day. And kind of those factors have created a lot of stress and thrown a wrench in in the incumbent warehousing business models that relied on marking up space a ton, charging a ton for offloading pallets and, and pallet storage. And that's not so much of what direct-to-consumer companies do. I mean, a company may bring in 20 pallets, but those pallets are distributed out by eaches, right? Individual items. So those pallets can last six months. And that's just a very different business velocity from your more traditional brands. So kind of this like misalignment, in my opinion, has festered for quite a while and ultimately has created a lot of, you know, substandard service levels, frankly, service failures and, and just shoddy and shady business practices. And for a consumer brand, it's, it's hard to trust and rely on your warehouse. It's hard to have a phenomenal relationship with them. So we've always wanted to approach things with empathy. Our model was built from the ground up specifically to service you know, D2C brands. And we know and what your it's own like. D2C brands, right? You're exactly. eating your own dog food. 
Exactly. So, you know, going back, um, you know, I'm also the founder of a company called Nice Laundry, direct to consumer socks, apparel, loungewear. We were customer number one of outer space. And we put in a little bit of this uh, separation of church and state where I'm not the person managing that relationship on the Nice Laundry side. I have my operation person, I have my customer service people, they're the ones interfacing with outer space on a day-to-day basis. So they make sure, you know, I hear directly from them if something's not right, if a, if a process needs to be tweaked, I hear from them. And often that's a change that we put out across the entire portfolio of clients that we work with. So it's been this interesting opportunity to kind of get a, a real inside look, uh, fairly unbiased while, while also operating outer space as well. And then really the second reason we created Outer Space was because the modern brand was evolving so much and warehousing just wasn't keeping up. The supply chain and sales dynamic for a modern consumer brand just looks so different from anything that it used to be. You know, for example, the warehouse is the last touch before a product or an order goes to a customer. That means most customer service inquiries have to run through the warehouse now. Sales volume is often unpredictable. It's not about wholesale pre-buys with months of notice. Volume can spike in the blink of an eye, as Nell knows so well. Brands want tight turns on products. Sometimes executing a product photo shoot delays the launch of a product. Brands have VIP customers that want extras thrown in or priority pro, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on. And I think the question that, that all the listeners have to ask themselves as they run their brands is, are their warehouses really equipped to handle kind of all of that, all of that extra scope? And that, that's pretty much why we exist. You mentioned photo shoots. I, I imagine that's not something a lot of warehouses cover. T- t- can you talk about the the stack that you kind of evolved to cover that traditional uh, warehouses might not? Sure. Um, you know, fundamentally, this goes back to the nice laundry days when we were frustrated working with 3PL after 3PL. We wanted them to do extra things for us. They already had all of our product there. There was things that they could execute for us that would make our lives a lot simpler. And when we couldn't find that, we decided to take it in-house and and kind of, we took a little bit of a, a quote unquote dumb approach to it at the beginning. So we weren't warehousing guys, right? We were all kind of brand founders, apparel people, uh, marketers. And so we, we took down some space and we really asked ourselves, what can we do in this space that would make our lives easier? So of course you have warehousing as a core component, but photography was one of the first things that we put in. When you typically execute on a photo shoot, your product arrives to the warehouse a lot of times. Then you're asking your warehouse to carefully pick and pack a certain assortment of product that you then send to the studio. You rent the studio, you show up a day early, you unpack everything, you steam it, you iron it out, you lay it out, you go through all the flows. Then you execute on the photo shoot the next day. You bring a big team there, you're shooting photographs, maybe something looks good, you wanna roll with it. Hey, wouldn't it be great if we had a layout of 10 of these products, we could get a cool kind of layout shot. Well, we didn't ship 10 of the products here, so we can't do that. So it just seemed really inefficient, so we said, you know, Photography, the photo studio is an example of something that needs to move to the warehouse where the product already is. Maybe your team can even come out there and they have an entire day to play around with all the product. They can pull it from inventory, they can take different shots. And it's just an example of kind of when you start putting things into the warehouse that you could argue the warehouse should have, that that is a space where that stuff should have been executed from the beginning. I think you get some really interesting synergies. 
Nell, can you walk us through? I've never, I've never run a drop myself. I've just heard, you know, brands talk about these incredible successes, these millions of dollars in minutes of sales. Can you walk us through a little bit of like how you plan out a drop, and then maybe touch on how that interacts with with outer space, how you communicate to them about when and how you're going to have a drop. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's really a partnership, especially in the first kind of 18 months of drops. We were like sticking our finger out and guessing. We were like, this is what we think we can do, but we have no idea. And especially when you you tend to sell out, I think it really is this like magical equation of figuring out like how to meet demand, but not oversupply. Because I think the thing that, that is so crucial that customers might not realize is oversupply is a huge problem, especially in the fashion industry. So we have to be kind of managing this. Yeah, we don't want markdowns from an environmental standpoint, from a business standpoint, from lots of different standpoints. So it's kind of like, how much risk are we willing to take that we think you know will meet this demand? So when it comes to kind of warehouse and logistics, it's really, we gotta hold hands, right? We have to say like, this is what we're predicting, and here's how we think things will go. But of course, we don't know the future, and if we did, things would look very different. And I think what's been so crucial to our team, and especially in the age of like online shopping at a click, is to remember that there are human beings who are packing, picking and packing every package that goes out, every unit that goes out, right? Ricky's team has to be appropriately staffed, and the staff can't be overworked, and the staff has to be healthy and be taking the appropriate amount of breaks. So it really is this kind of holding hands with your logistics partner and your fulfillment partner and saying, how can we make sure we have the appropriate amount of staff, the back end is working properly in order to meet the demand that, that we're expecting. So that also involves us, you know, on our end, um, when it comes to a drop, we'll, we'll give our customers, I do a Q&A on Instagram before a drop, and we'll give our customers a sense of how soon we think things will ship. That sense is dependent on how we sell, right? Because there are humans picking and packing. So, you know, we might say like, okay, we think this time it's going to be about five business days. We over dramatize it. We're more conservative because we don't, we want to be, um, have people be pleasantly surprised. We call it surprise and delight, right? Like we'd like to delight you with that package you thought was coming in five days actually coming in one. Um, And so we'll of course work with our fulfillment partner in order to come up with that estimate based on how much product we have in the warehouse, what their staffing looks like. But again, if it were this like perfect seamless, um, you know, equation that we could all just pop into Excel, it would be a lot easier, but it's not. And what if you were to, you know, you switched to outer space, like, with your traditional fulfillment company, could you be having the scale of drops that you're having currently? Could they have flexed up and handled it? It just would have been more awkward? Or were they just fundamentally not able to kind of handle that volume of of, of goods in such a short time? Well, first of all, let me tell you, I stalked outer space a little bit. <laughs> I had a friend tell me about outer space and my husband loves nice laundry. So um, I knew a little bit about what they were doing. Um, there's an alum from where I went to college who's also at outer space. And I remember like stalking the website and thinking like, oh, I don't know. So we had a bunch of calls. I think it it took a little while. Like it was maybe like a year or so until we were able to actually start working together. But I was a little bit of a stalker. It's like, you know, when you have your eyes on something, you're like, I want to be an outer space client. Like this is who we want to be with. Um, 
but no, you know, our previous fulfillment partner, I think, you know, you have to have this like belief that the business model is going to work, right? You have to be very forward thinking. You have to have a sense of how you can make your own um, fulfillment work. But it's really just being aligned. That like alignment of management, I think, is absolutely crucial because, you know, you think about it every day at work, like you, you can focus on some things, you can't focus on everything. So it was really about aligning priorities, aligning how we think the future is going to go and and it was clear from the start that Outer Space had the same vision as we do about customer experience, about fulfillment, about you know what modern brands are going to do to grow. So, Ricky, I assume I, I you mentioned that you're sort of you're not you're not picky, but you're selective about the kind of brands that are really going to be successful with Outer Space. What like talk a little bit about Hill House Home, and then like what other kind of brands you think are home runs for Outer Space? Yeah, I think operations often takes two to tango. Right, so we want to work with brands that have a at least at the at a very minimum a willingness to achieve operational excellence. So when the Hill House team originally came in, you can tell very quickly what type of ops people are there. Is it really a marketing person who has kind of been like bastardized to work as an operations person? They're not asking the right questions, and so there are certain markers that we look for. Uh, that are going to be indicators of success. If all you care about is making the sale and the customer experience, the LTV, the organic repeat, it doesn't really matter, then we're probably not going to work together. So, you know, I think in Hill House's case, especially, you know, drops are here to stay, I think, for a long time. And they make sense for so many reasons, ranging from you can create your own marketing, organic marketing events, all the way to when you're broadening and increasing the breadth of product, you have to test things out and you never know truly what's going to sell. Something might catch fire. And then we've seen the same dynamic happen over and over. Hey, we sold out of this stuff really quickly. Let's buy 5X this product. Well, it takes months and months to get the product there. And by that time, demand is at an all-time high. So you release that 5X quantity, boom, it sells out again. So you just kind of keep going through this cycle. And I think in order to truly execute well on something like that, I think the best way to think about it is that... um, What we try to do is we try to extend further upstream and downstream within the supply chain. So every brand here, including Hill House, has a wonderful dedicated operations manager. And this is someone with e-commerce or ops experience. And the ops manager is dialed in or invited to the inventory planning meetings, the sales forecasting meetings. That means the operations manager sees around corners for the brands and is always up to speed on everything. That's what we always wanted out of the warehouse that we we're working with when we were at Nice Laundry. Why, why isn't there some that who we can keep abreast of everything that's going on? So as a result, the ops managers know when POs are going into production, when they're loaded onto a ship, when they clear customs, they know when the product launches, when sales and drops are happening. So there is this, there is this sense of harmony, right? Lockstep. There's no frantic communication, no blown SLAs. Um, again, just something like you would build in-house. So I think that's really been like, the teams who come in with this desire for operational success and they're well organized and frankly, they work well with their ops managers, right? We always tell brands, dial your ops managers into meetings, uh, consult them on kind of inventory planning and when stuff's coming in. Some brands do it, some brands don't. And the brands that do it, and Hill House does a lot of it, the Hill House team and their ops managers spend a lot of time together, that's gonna equal operational success because I think in a perfect world operations, everyone should do it in-house. 
but it's not a part of everyone's model. Everyone can't make it work. Frankly, a lot of companies don't wanna think about that kind of stuff. So the next best thing is replicating that in-house experience and that communication and desire for a kind of clean, good operations is very key. I love it. I hate to be the brand that comes in and says I'm opposed to operational excellence, but I know that's you know that there's some brands that would would act that way without without ever saying it. It's interesting. D 2 C is just this story of people being able to take a business model that existed in you know traditional retail and then break it down to a much more granular atomized level basically where you're where you're sort of treating customers you know you're meeting customers where they're at through your marketing through their uh, customer experience and then it only makes sense that the whole back end of the process would need to become you know more granular more atomized more dynamic um, to, to suit the new business model as well and and I think with the the economy with the iOS 14 issues like every edge that you can have is so essential and so building your back end to be you know the most modern it can be the most dynamic the most granular. I think it's going to be an imperative for brands kind of going forward. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. On the nap dress side, I, I'm like, it's so interesting. It's such a neat product because it's so, it, it, I think you're absolutely right, Ricky, in that it, it, it just tells a visual story. It's like a, this whimsical, beautiful dress. And then to name it the nap dress is just such a, such a good, you know, downbeat in a way to be like, it's such this glamorous, beautiful dress, but you can also, it's comfortable enough to nap in. And I think it's, it's really built in that way. What other products, like, do you, are you trying to replicate the lightning in the bottle? I guess all the time you're trying to replicate the lightning in the bottle of the nap dress with your new products that you launch now? I think we are always like leaving some room for magic to happen, but trying not to like insert ourselves too much. I think that we, you know, we have these like brand pillars, right? The Naptress was created out of this kind of need for practicality and beauty at the same time, right? Like you don't have to choose between those two things. Something can look incredible and glamorous and great, but it can also be super comfortable and you can put it in your machine um, and wash it and you don't have to send it out to the dry cleaner. So when we go into new categories, we really tend to think from those same pillars um, and then, you know, watch what happens. I think we never expect overnight successes. I think it's so important to remember that like when, when people talk about viral products, it really can sound like this happened overnight. We've, we've been around for since 2016. We've been around for six years. There were so many days when I was like, okay, and one product was sold today. <laughs> like we just had, you know, so many, so many months where we were like, how's payroll going to happen? None of this stuff happens overnight. It takes patience. It takes, um, you know, a ton, a ton of humility. And so I think we, we're, we tend to think that way in these new categories too, like not to expect overnight success to really take the customer feedback, allow the product to live. Um, and then, you know, let the customers lead us as much as possible. The drop model is so attractive. I, I think you brought up that great point about it, it just reducing waste in a lot of ways. When you're able to sell out, you're not, you don't have as much uh, mark, you know, goods on your shelf or there's the environmental impact there as well. Are there any drawbacks to, to sort of growing the business through the drop model now? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one for me is that like disappointing factor, right? Like, you know, especially in the first first kind of year of drops, we had customers who were just really upset, you know, like they played and wanted something and they had, as Ricky said, like they had an event in mind to wear it to and they couldn't get it. And I think that was really hard for me as a founder to watch because I wanted to make it happen for them. I think that's been tough. And then I think the kind of figuring out demand piece is really tough too, right? Because you are guessing um, and you don't want to overdo it. But but I think all in all, it's been a really wonderful learning experience. And, and we found ways to make the drop model feel a little bit um, more fun and more exciting for our customers. 
so so I think it's I think it's been great. I think you know the the key thing for me has just been remembering, and and I think a ton of like D to C kind of um, advice doesn't center upon what happens after the purchase, right? Everything's so focused on conversion, conversion, conversion. But what happens after the purchase? Like, what's the life somebody's living with the product? And then also, how are they getting it? So I think that's been, um, you know, a really crucial thing for us to focus on in the past 12 months. And often how they're getting it can impact the life of the product as well, or their their experience or their frame on the product as well, right? If they have a really bad experience, they're, they're really hyped up for a drop, they don't get what they want, it, you know, it could affect that LTV of, of the customer relationship easily. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Ricky, I'm just curious, like, you know, you're you're at the nexus point of, of all these different e-commerce businesses, uh, you know, managing their their warehouse, their backends, things like that. You've got your own e-commerce businesses. I'm curious, going through the last, let's call it two years for, for a, a random reason, uh, what are your thoughts on sort of, the, sort of the evolution of commerce in the next two to three years? What, what are the best brands going to be able to do best, would you say? Sure. I think it's it's just it's dependability, having a product that needs to exist, you know, a good reason for its existence, some differentiation. When you look at the marketing playing field, it's been leveled, at least for now. Big user act budgets won't necessarily win right now. Same day shipping, things like that won't necessarily win because fundamentally they're not scalable and in today's climate especially they're just not sustainable. So I think brands that are pure marketing companies with a so-so product, they may go away. I think brands, selfishly I'm gonna plug, brands that are not operationally robust will go away because it's just gonna be disappointing customer experiences time after time. I think brands that don't have a differentiated product They'll all go away. Brands that don't embrace these kind of ideals of being eco-friendly or socially conscious may start to feel like they become marginalized or they're on the fringe. So the best brands will be able to fundamentally grow a customer relationship. If you both think about kind of the brands you're most loyal to, unless it's a consumable product, you're probably not buying the same product over and over, and that's not how you're growing your LTV with the brand. There's been that one anchor product that has hooked you, the, the nap dress, for example, and you really liked how it made you feel, you liked the delivery experience, you liked the wearability of the product, and so you just want to invest more and more into the brand and kind of go horizontal with the brand. So I think brands that figure that out, who build a relationship with the consumer, who, who prioritize kind of quality over quantity, these are the brands that are gonna win. And it sounds very obvious, but we've had a run-up over the past decade where you can leverage you know, so fairly sophisticated you know, performance marketing strategies to really grow the business, but there's almost been a reset button. So it's back to basics, it's back to fundamentals, it's gonna be more meritocratic. So we've already start to, started to see brands kind of Think about that and embrace that. Brands that have historically always been e-commerce only direct consumer, they're starting to think about opening their own stores, right? As Hill House has done, because that gives your customers another touch point. It builds a quality in the relationship. So I think that's gonna be a massive, a massive part of it. And I think that's interesting because, you know, it's always great to see brands who tell good stories and, and make good products win over the brands who just who have figured out that like one ad unit that is just a conversion beast and they're gonna run the score up with that. 
and now you you tell you told the story early on of just you know going through the iterations of the business, building up your organic audience, not going super heavy into paid social and things like that in the beginning, while you build up your real like ember, your glowing ember. It's like, and then once you can, once you have that, you have your your, your all your proof points and you, you uh you know your, your customer avatar really nailed, then your advertising becomes so much more successful when you really have all those fundamentals dialed. And I think that's that's a theme I see again and again in this podcast is that the brands that win have their own internal organic momentum and then they leverage ads to kind of grow and the drop model and all these other things to to grow uh, to add, add fuel to the fire exactly yeah it, it, brands don't exist in a vacuum you know this is not something that like is it's is developed in a boardroom it's something that's really developed in conversation with customers and in conversation with partners on fulfillment and production sides i think that like the biggest surprise to me, but happily so, has been how much of this, you know, building a brand has been relationship-based on on all ends. You know, if you don't have, you know, with our previous warehouse and logistics partner, we adored, adored, adored our rep there, our amazing, amazing rep. She was like one of the best parts of our day. But I think at the end of the day, you know, if, if management doesn't have the same kind of forward-looking perspective on the um, economic environment and, you know, the D2C world, you just can't make things happen. So I think those relationships that we've built on both sides have been absolutely crucial. Very cool. Now, if we were to give you a $50,000 grant, where would you put that uh, into the business now to see the biggest growth? So it's a different answer like today than it would have been even a year ago. But I think, you know, we've just seen so much growth um, online and so much operational excellence in the past kind of uh, year or so, thanks to our relationship with Outer Space. I think now where, where I think we could really move the needle is is in person. So I would be doing some in real life um thing, whether that's, you know, a pop-up in New York City. We're in, I'm in Nantucket right now. We have a pop-up store here. It's just been so amazing to see people try on the clothes, try on the shoes, touch and feel the home products, more of that. I think that's the next couple of years for us will really be more about getting that in, in real life uh, experience with our customers. I think it's even just you starting with a, a square of fabric to start a square of fabric that people can't even touch and feel like that's another handicap to starting it. It feels like so so good on you. And I think that's that's a great this experiential marketing um, and, and these these. Did you open a store? You've you've done pop ups. We actually so we started with a store like our in twenty six. 2017, we had a store on Bleecker Street, a tiny little 400 square foot store. Um, and our lease, we got, you know, very lucky. Our lease was up right before COVID. So since COVID, we've had pop-ups, um, but we're looking to have permanent retail footprint um, in the next uh, kind of six months. And then Ricky, it's kind of the same question, I guess. I'm just, I'm interested in what, in what you're looking at developing for, <clears throat> for outer space. If we were to give you a 50K grant, <clears throat> Um, to either grow the business or grow a, an aspect of the service, where would you be putting that at Outer Space? Sure, I, I think your typical warehouse answer would be, hey, we're going to invest that into trucking, or we want to build some sort of service that helps, uh, you know, scatter delivery of packages more. But um, for better or for worse, we're we're still brand people over here. So what we think about, we always our instinct is is, is to think kind of through the lens of our client first and. And you know, one of the things that I think would be incredibly helpful for clients, as I, as I see them, you know, make bigger and bigger inventory buys, they're working with all sorts of, you know, let's call them 
at best predatory types of partners to finance that kind of inventory. You know, I think there is a lot that we can do in the way of an interesting product financing offering because we have custody of the inventory. We know when it's coming. We have a ton of interesting data. I would probably put it towards that to just help our companies, everything from kind of the start of manufacturing at a PO all the way through um, the product hitting our warehousing. I think we can really make some interesting uh, inroads and some improvements in that part of the supply chain. So if you are looking for next level warehousing and backend fulfillment, you got to go to outerspace.com. Uh, how do you recommend, uh, what, what do you recommend people do, the listeners do here, Ricky? Just can they get in touch with you personally? Should they fill out a form on the page? Sure. E- either way, you know, please feel free to send me an email. It's, it's very easy, rc at outerspace.com. Or if you go to the website, there's kind of a little questionnaire and it takes you through some filters uh, and then someone will be in touch with you very quickly. Cool. I love. I, I think you know, as as we've got thousands of brand owners in in the audience here, and I, that 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 ability to to potentially talk, to, you know, email RC at uh, outerspace.com and talk to you, another brand owner who's built this business, I think could be absolutely huge for this audience. So I, I hope, hope you get a lot of reach outs because I think it's a pretty pretty cool business. Absolutely. I want to thank you both for coming on the D2C podcast today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Eric. Congrats on all all the success. You know, great product with DTC, great newsletter. Now, of course, congrats on the success. And uh, we look we look forward to shipping more and more nap dresses out every month. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumer all one word dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C podcast. We'll see you next time.